I, I tend to look at them and I just almost pass me just want to pull my hair out and say, you're starting in the wrong place. You're going there because it sounds easy to do. And yet it isn't. Because what happens when you speak up? That is far more important than speaking up. Welcome, everyone, to Culture by Design. I have with me today Nikki Ayer. And let me say a word about uh, Nikki Ayer. She's founder and managing director of Conduct Change. And she's had a varied career working in finance, and then she moved into education, training, and coaching roles. And she works in public, private, and charity sectors. She herself experienced both opportunity and adversity during her career, including her own experience of feeling bullied at work. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. She recognizes the scale of the problem at both an organizational and an individual level and is able to bring her wealth of experience to her role. She founded Conduct Change as a result of her passion for working with individuals and businesses to prevent and resolve workplace bullying. It's really amazing, and, and I, we could go on and on. She's a member of the International Association on Workplace Bullying and Harassment and was recently invited to become a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts in recognition of her work in this area. So Nikki, welcome. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Tim. It was really lovely of you to invite me to be here. Oh, I'm, it's it's our pleasure. So take us through your experience. How did you get to this place where you are now working to combat bullying? How did this come about? You probably you probably step back from time to time and ask yourself, how did I get to this place? I mean, this is unusual. So tell us the story. It is so through my career, um, I say I started in finance and ended up moving into education and was working in different sectors and enjoyed what I did and I was quite successful. And I moved into quite a senior role sort of later into my career and found myself in a position where I really struggled to connect with my boss. And basically what happened was we ended up in a situation where I felt bullied quite early on in that role. Mm -hmm. And there was a, you know, a really small incident that was sorted out very quickly. But because of the way he responded to me and uh, basically threatened the security of my job, then I came out of that meeting feeling quite bullied. But I also thought to myself at that time, well, that's ridiculous. You know, I'm successful. I'm in a senior role. Can't possibly be bullied. And found myself continuing to work and thinking, well, I'll just work harder. I'll perform better um, and make them realize that actually I am good. I'm worth keeping in the role. What I didn't realize until I look back with hindsight is that what I was doing was I was performing in such a way that I met his expectations, which was not necessarily in line with my values. Hmm. And 
as we went through, uh, I think it took me about a year before I actually was prepared to stand up and go, okay, this is happening and I need to do something about it. Right. And I went in at that point, you know, there's, as everybody does, let's go and have a look at HR, at the processes, the policies, the procedures, did a little bit of exploration. Am I making this up? Talked to a trusted colleague and basically knew that I had to stand up and do something at that point in time. And so I went with absolute blind faith using the processes set out for me believing that I would be listened to, I would be heard, that they would be protected. Yeah, that action would be taken, that something would change as a result of that. Hmm. And what it actually did was lead me into probably one of the most damaging experiences to my psychological health, my physical health, my overall well-being, my behaviors and just my whole personality, really, the, the social impact as well, an extraordinarily damaging experience. And I didn't realize at the time how long it was going to take me to recover from that. And it took about six years to really get myself back to that level of confidence. It's incredible. Yeah, by actually going through that, it's, I've moved from that was a horrendous experience to really try to understand what happened to me and understand what bullying is for my own part of my recovery process. Mm-hmm. And then on to what an extraordinarily fascinating subject. Why on earth aren't we taking this seriously? It's incredibly damaging in terms of individuals, but also organizations. And it went from a horrendous experience to something that I'm incredibly passionate about because I just don't think enough people are recognizing it, talking about it, and understanding the, the damage it can do and how we can avoid it. Mm-hmm. So then you, at some point, you turned around and you said, I'm going to help others. Yes. Where did you get the idea that you could, that you could do something that you could scale your influence and your impact and help individuals and organizations on a, as I said, a bigger scale. Where did you get that idea or have that thought? There was a pivotal moment where I was in a conversation and somebody mentioned the name of my alleged bully, as I need to refer to them as. Sure. And I didn't have that overwhelming emotional reaction that I'd always had previously. I realized then that I was in a position where I could turn this around, where I could take a really negative experience and really share my learning from it. And it started slowly at first, and it started by just going out to individuals and collecting case studies, sharing their experiences, and then starting to go out and just talk to others a little bit. So this was kind of informal, right, Nikki? Um, yeah, I was, yes, it was very much me doing it. Uh, you know, I was coaching at the time. And so I would use my coaching skills to help the people who came forward with their case studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would go out doing short talks just in my local community. But what I was finding was the number of people who were saying, wow, I suddenly realized that I wasn't alone. And that kind of really became quite a driver. 
and it really encouraged me to look further. So now we have the the business element, which works with organisations, but we've also we set the business up with a, a social purpose to really help try and prevent workplace bullying. Mm-hmm. And we've now set up a charity to actually deliver on that, which is everything from campaigning for legislative change because there's no legal definition in the UK of workplace bullying to raise awareness through webinars and conferences and also to help individuals who've left work because of workplace bullying but are emotionally and financially struggling and just need that support in the moment to help them keep going to help them move on so you've got efforts going on at the organizational level yeah and the individual level. Yes. What works, Nikki? What works? First of all, let's let's make the distinction between bullying as an individual phenomenon and then an organizational phenomenon. Talk a little bit about that. So I think as an individual, we know that people bully for a number of reasons. And it can be anything from um, so trauma that has happened to them previously. They may have been bullied themselves. It may be that they've adopted management practices and behaviours that they've seen are accepted and rewarded in the organisation. It may be that they are quite simply unaware. They just don't have that level of emotional intelligence that allows them to be aware of the impact of their behaviours on others. And it's it's quite interesting because so many people talk about psychopaths in the workplace and narcissists in the workplace. And, you know, a lot of this can actually be prevented by developing the emotional intelligence, developing those skills, those people skills and management skills. But what can happen is that a leader, so often when it's a new leader that comes in as well, that wants to prove themselves and maybe even bring their own people in. What people have learned is that they're able to manage people out if they make life a little bit uncomfortable for them. So they stay at a performance level, they're doing the right thing, or they might even think they're doing the right thing, like you're not, that person's not right for the job. So if we manage them out of the organization, then it's better for them. Okay, so this is interesting. The the language of we're going to manage out, mm. So that's interesting terminology. Yeah. And, and what I hear you saying, Nikki, is that if we think about bullying on a spectrum, so at one end we have overt, blatant, clearly destructive forms of bullying that we're all familiar with that we could spot and say, hey, that's that's clearly bullying behavior. But at the other, other end of the spectrum, we have subtle, mild forms of bullying. So then we bring in this this concept of managing out, well, that can be a a pernicious thing. That can be code for subtle and mild forms of bullying to marginalize a person, embarrass a person, demean a person, and help them move out of the organization because it's uh, it gets to be intolerable. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, um, again, 
when we look at the way managers are put into organisations, people are promoted because they're good at a job, not necessarily because they're good at managing people. True. And then perhaps they see someone doing very well at the job they used to be very good at and their their discomfort, their incompetencies, their fear of being found out that they're not as good at what they are mean that they then get threatened by that person. That's just one example because there could be so many different reasons. But yes, those, and then it could get worse. Yeah. Yeah. But that huge range, you know, it can start with those real little bits of rudeness and incivility. Even just, you know, not asking somebody if they want a cup of tea when you're asking everybody else in the office and things like that, where you're starting to exclude people. But those those little bits of behaviour that can be caught really easily at that level and turned around. But if they're allowed mm-hmm. to continue and they carry on and say that somebody, the original question was about the difference between individual and organisational. And, and it's quite hard to distinguish because yeah. what you get is the organisational approach and culture that says everyone has to perform at this level and if they don't, they should be out. Right. And then you get the individual who doesn't recognize how to support people to perform at that level and only knows how to get them out because the only management training they've had is how to run a disciplinary or a a grievance procedure. Let's come back to a distinction that you made earlier, which is that sometimes people are bullying unintentionally versus intentionally. They're not even aware of it. Absolutely, yeah. That's a pretty incredible thing. Now, that's a very different thing than being predatory, than trying to engage in harmful or destructive behavior, right, premeditatively. That's a very different thing than, I mean, I think, Nikki, of um, managers and leaders that I've worked with that are culturally tone deaf, they're interpersonally clumsy, they're awkward, they're introverted, they're, they're insensitive, all of those things, right? And so it would be very easy for them to offend someone unwittingly. And they don't mean to. And oftentimes they are good, benevolent people. They mean well, they have good intentions, but they might be abrasive, they may be indifferent, they're just not sensitive at the human interface when they're working with people. That's one thing, but it's quite a different thing when you are deliberately engaging in bullying behavior, right? Yes. Yeah. And I always say, if you bring it to somebody's attention and then they do not change their behavior, then even if they can have said beforehand, well, mm-hmm. it wasn't intended and you know, I didn't mean for that to happen, if they are not prepared to take on board the impact they've had on somebody and to try and make changes, then it absolutely becomes intentional at that point. If you are not prepared to engage in any kind of level of change within yourself, to change a relationship because that's the only way relationships change when people change within themselves and then actually it becomes an intentional act and the other side of that is when organizations 
know that somebody has been, you know, they've said there's been allegations of bullying and it happens more than once and yet that person, no action is taken to either support or remove that person. And I always come from a support first basis. Right. But, but what we're saying is we're allowing for the fact that an individual may engage in some of this behavior unintentionally, but we're going to bring it to their attention. And once we do, then we cross the threshold. Now you know, we've put you on notice, you're aware, and so you can't do that anymore. You can't say that anymore. And so from here on out, you're aware of this, it's your responsibility, you're accountable. So you've crossed over, you've crossed over because we're alerting you, we're letting you know that this is where you are now. And so you've got the ball and you're responsible. And so here we go. And now it's very different. The terms of engagement have shifted and now you are responsible and you're aware of what's going on. Yeah. And then similarly, the organization has the same responsibility, right? If you if we're reporting, if we're helping them understand, now they have the moral responsibility to respond to that at that point. So it's this, it's a similar, it's a similar point in time where we now cross over. Yes. And I would absolutely say the first thing you've got to do is put support in. So coaching, mentoring, those kind of supports, but something that helps with behavioral change for both parties involved. Right. And, you know, there's got to be support. There'll be different approaches for each party, but there needs to be support on both sides. And when you don't get that, that's when it just escalates. And one of the things we do at the moment is when it's brought to the organization's attention, instead of trying to bring it back down, instead of trying to de-escalate the issue, our processes and policies and procedures escalate the issue. If you go to HR, they'll give you an anti-bullying policy and they'll give you a grievance policy. So everything pushes it up the scale towards the more adversarial approach. Mm -hmm. And then what the organisation becomes concerned about is how do I keep out of court? Mm -hmm. How do I avoid any legal action at this point? And that is where the person, the individual who has brought the complaint, suddenly faces what is um, sometimes termed institutional betrayal. So not only are they in a fight, for want of a better word, because that's what it becomes with this person they've made the complaint about, but also with the whole organisation. And what we need to do is say, right, let's stop. Let's see what support can go in to bring this back down. And the earlier we can do that, the better. And that, for me, is really, really key. We've got to stop focusing on going to formal processes to resolve these issues. So what I'm hearing, Nikki, is that when we go to formal processes, disciplinary processes, grievance procedures, it reminds me of when I was a plant manager in manufacturing years ago, and we had all of that institutional machinery to help us. But what you're saying is, is that as soon as we go there, it becomes adversarial. 
And it's very difficult at that point to unwind that, to, to go back the other direction, to de-escalate and to, to get through it in a healthy way and make the changes that we need to make because the institution is trying to preserve deniability. They don't want the liability exposure associated with any of that. But as soon as we go to that place, it's hard to unwind that. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, that's where our focus is at the moment. So the way that that I look at it, we have a model which is called the three R's of workplace bullying, which is recognize, resolve and recover. And at the moment, what we're not doing is enough work on the recognizing, recognizing the behaviors early, recognizing positive behaviors. What do we really want in the organization? What we're doing is we're waiting for things to go wrong. And then we're going to the resolve scenario. But because we're not focusing on early resolution, we're going into the top end of that. And once you're into those formal processes, then for me, it's a done deal. It's over. Forget it. It's, you know, people are getting hurt, not just the people involved, but, you, you know, because people who are bullied will become traumatized. They will suffer from trauma as a result of this. But you can also have people all around them, that ripple effect of the people handling the case, the people in the team, all are going to be affected by this case going on. And so what we talk about then is you need to go into the recovery zone. Forget that. You know, if you're into formal processes, it's going to take time and it will all, there are no winners from that. Mm -hmm. You've got to look at recovery. So how are you going to support both the organization to learn from that and the individuals, including the wider team, to recover, to rebuild trust, to feel safe in that organization again? So overall, though, Nikki, what I hear you saying is that we are still, from a systems perspective, right? If we get up in our hot air balloon and we look down and we look at the way we're doing this, it's still not preventive. We're, we're not preventing, we're repairing. It's, if I go back to my manufacturing analogy, when I was in manufacturing, we did maintenance. We had a maintenance system. Well, you could do a breakdown maintenance system, or you could do a preventative slash predictive maintenance system. And if it's a breakdown maintenance system, we wait for something to break down and typically, we just keep treating symptoms and we never get to root cause analysis and corrective action. Is that similar? Perfect. Yes, absolutely. We do not tackle the root cause. Bullying, when you look at it, is just, it's about behaviors. It's about learned behaviors. It's about the norms of behavior in an organization or the norms of behavior in an individual because of what they have experienced during their life. And there are huge opportunities for change, improvement, different approaches within all of that. There will always be that small element who are bullying because they just believe it's their right. Mm -hmm. They believe that they deserve more than others. There are some people who are just going to walk over others to get what they want and do not want to change from that and will deliberately bully others out of their way and do not see the wrong in that. 
Yeah. So let, let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about, let, let's tie that to intent because what, one of the things that, that I personally have studied over the last couple of years, Nikki, is when you find a toxic environment on a team, you will normally find a pattern in the leader. You'll find two patterns. One will be where the leader is actively toxic themselves. That means they, they, they engage in toxic bullying behavior and they're doing it on purpose. The other pattern is that the leader is passively complicit. The leader is not holding people accountable when they engage in bullying behavior. So it's one, it's one or the other. Either you're actively toxic and bullying yourself or you're passively complicit. And the pattern that I've seen is that if you're actively toxic and, and you're engaging in these bullying behaviors yourself, you're not as coachable because your intent, the intent you bring is malicious often versus a leader that is passively complicit, doesn't know exactly what to do, needs help, is much more coachable. Do you see that? Yes. It goes back to intent. Absolutely. Yes. I couldn't agree more. And yeah, that when you have somebody who is just malicious, then an organization has to be strong enough to hold them accountable and remove them because the damage that they will do to other people in the organization and the people around them is just extraordinary. But of course, the biggest problem you get is when that person is at the top of the organization and nobody is holding them accountable. And isn't that how we perpetuate bullying behavior and a bullying culture? Yeah, because we just, uh, one of the sayings that I use, and apologies to whoever came up with this first, but if you permit it, you promote it. I love that. So, yeah, if you are not calling it out and holding people accountable, then you might as well be cheering them on. Right. We talk, it reminds me of this distinction, Nikki. We talk about accountability in the workplace, but most of the time we're talking about performance accountability. That means, mm -hmm. did you perform your tasks and do we have your measurable metrics so we can see if you're performing or not? That's performance accountability. I think we need to distinguish that from cultural accountability. Cultural accountability means the way that you are performing, the way that you're interacting, the way that you got to the results that you got to. I think there's a huge distinction there. And we, we just don't talk about cultural accountability as much as we talk about performance accountability. No, and I think there is, there is a shift starting in that area, but it's going to be a long, slow process to get there. But one of the things that we look at with organizations is, okay, you've got a set of values. What behaviors are going to allow people to really help contribute to those values in the organization? How are they going to align? And actually what you should be looking at is how do those value-driven behaviors get measured, if you like? How are they getting picked up? Because it's quite hard to measure, but in terms of how are they being picked up? If you're doing supervision of an appraisal, a coaching session, how are you talking to them about their behaviors? Because it should all be linked to their, their targets. And actually, organizations should be looking at behaviors 
behaviour as an area of risk management because poor behaviour in an organisation is probably the greatest risk. And if employees are not being heard, it now goes to another level because they go out onto social media and they tell the world. They do, don't they? In many ways, there's more transparency and the transparency creates accountability that we didn't used to have. And so there, there's some benefits that come from that. Let me, I want to come back to, I, w- I want to link to what you just said. So there's a statement that Albert Bandura made. He was a longtime professor of psychology at Stanford. And I believe that it, it connects to what you're saying, Nikki, and I love this. He says, most human behavior is learned observationally through modeling from observing others. And what I'm hearing you say is that you can have values, you can put them behind glass, you can put them on a wallet card, you can talk about them, you can communicate them, but they have to be translated, they have to be converted into behaviors because ultimately we are going to learn observationally. And the leaders set the tone. They have that important stewardship for cultural formation. They, in fact, they're the, the single most important factor in, in culture formation and the perpetuation of norms on a team. So how do you help teams and organizations and leaders and, and tell them, you, you've got values, that's nice. Show me what they look like. Show me what the personification, the embodiment of that value looks like if i if we don't translate then it's still conceptual yeah and one of the ways that i like to work on that is to create what i call a conduct agreement and so we have facilitated sessions that say first of all what does that value mean to you because the chances are that everybody in this room has got a different interpretation so the first thing you've got to do is understand what that value means And then once we realize that, we can go, okay, so what would you be doing in your work, in your job? How would you be acting? How would you be behaving if you were showing that value? And once people start to really apply it to their own work, their own roles, whether that is, I don't know, even things like, say you've got the cleaner in an organization. And they're going to go, well, you know, that doesn't apply to me. I just come in and clean clean the offices and off I go again. And it's like, no, actually what you're doing is you are help creating an environment that is clean and great to work in, which allows other people the opportunity to just get on with their work, meet their targets, but have that creativity and that performance. And I think people like that are really, really missed in an organization. And so you might flip it around and go to the CEO and say, if nobody ever came and took the coffee cups from your desk and nobody emptied your bin and nobody cleaned the floor for you and you brought heads of industry in here for a meeting, what difference would that make to the meeting? And we have to understand that everybody has that role. And to value everybody within there and also look at if, you know, if the value, for example, is innovation, Mm -hmm. then 
I'm quite sure that cleaners all have their little tips and tricks for getting things clean and different ways of different ways of doing things. And all of that makes a better environment for the chief executive to meet with the heads of industry and have a great meeting. It does align together, but people don't always understand how everybody at every level can make a difference. And it's about really applying that and getting people to see how they fit, how they make a difference. I love that. Often they don't see themselves that way, right? It's not part of their frame. They don't understand that it's embedded in their role. And so they think culture, that's those people. That's not me. But yet it's infused. It's embedded in their role. Let's move the discussion a little bit, Nikki, to a pattern that we're seeing a lot. Uh, There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of demand in organizations to create a speak-up culture. We're hearing this all over the place. I can tell you that in the States, there's a lot of momentum behind this. It's an interesting thing, though, because oftentimes we see senior leaders who try to decree it into existence with mere words. We're going to have a speak-up culture, by golly, and we're doing it, and it starts right now. And so I want everyone to speak up. I want your honest feedback. I want your candid input. Here we go. Do you see that? Absolutely, yeah. There are so many different ways they're now creating for people to speak up. So you've got apps coming onto the market which allow people to speak up and they can do it anonymously. And I I tend to look at them and I just almost pass me just want to pull my hair out and say, you're starting in the wrong place. You're going there because it sounds easy to do. Mm And yet it isn't, because what happens when you speak up? That is far more important than speaking up. What is changing when you speak up? Because if nothing changes, if things aren't being done differently, then why would you speak up? And I think, again, you know, they'll they'll talk about using reporting systems and people will speak up about, you know, bullying and harassment in the organisation And they'll say, well, it's great because even though they're anonymous, we can pinpoint different areas of the organization that need support. But it's still a reactive process. And so where is the work that is being done to prevent the behaviors that people are wanting to speak up about? Because actually what you want people to be speaking up with are ideas and creativity and, you know, new ways of doing things and new products and all of that wonderful innovation, that's what you want people to speak up about. But if you're only encouraging them to speak up about the bad things and nothing is really changing when they do, then why are we doing it? Why this big focus here and not on the bigger picture? Well, and can you realistically expect that they're going to speak up if the conditions aren't there? As you and I have talked about before, there's a there's a ladder of vulnerability. Speaking up is at the top of that ladder of vulnerability. It has perhaps for many people, maybe most people, it has the most risk associated with it. And so are people going to go straight to that highest risk behavior of speaking up, challenging the status quo, if they don't believe that they're going to be rewarded for that behavior? It's too risky. You're putting your, you could be putting your career on the line, your reputation on the line. It's, 
that's an incredibly naive thing to do. And so it's, if the conditions aren't there to protect you in that behavior, it's disingenuous of you to even ask, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, you took putting your career on the line. That's exactly what I did when I spoke up. I believe that the processes were there. And that's another interesting thing that they do. They say to people, you know, there'll be a service and they say, do you believe that you'll be treated with respect if you reported a, a bullying complaint, for example? Right. And you know, it's really high percentage of people saying yes. Well, so did I until I did it. Uh-huh. And then I discovered actually that's not how it works in practice. And so, and unfortunately, that is a very, very common theme for so many people who speak up. We end up out of a job. We end up um, signing NDAs. Mm-hmm. We end up being, you know, having our confidence knocked so that we don't know where to start again. And yet the person we spoke up against stays in their job, so often promoted, things like that. This is what we see. And so surely that's going to send red flags to us and say, well, there's no point speaking up because that person did and they're not here anymore. They don't have a job. Right, right. Let, let's let's talk about this, Nikki. You have this accumulated experience now. What is working? What is working, whether it's at the individual level or the organizational level? What do you see where there's clear evidence that we're making progress? Definitely where managers are supported. So instead of just going to a role and saying, okay, there's all your skills training that you need for that role, let's focus on your people training, your individual emotional intelligence, having that coaching, a coaching culture in an organization. It's really important. You know, coaching doesn't have to be, you know, a one hour, two hour session somewhere else. Coaching in the moment. In the moment. It's a style, it's an approach. Um, so I think where people really feel that they're heard, where you know people are really listening to them, they are much more likely to speak up. When people explain why an idea isn't going to be taken forward instead of just saying no, it's that communication, that connection that's so important. And so the more you can do to train people and develop the it's the emotional intelligence it's really you know knowing yourself understanding yourself and the impact that you have on others that makes such a huge difference in this area and the earlier we can catch any problems the better mm-hmm. because the earlier they're caught the easier they are to resolve and the less damage is done in terms of the well-being to the individuals as well it reminds me, you said earlier, Nikki, that we often promote people into management on the strength of their performance as individual contributors, right? This is true around the world. Now, that's not wrong. I don't think that's wrong, but it's not sufficient. We also need to be looking at their ability to lead other humans, their ability to create an environment of psychological safety where people can flourish. So I love what you said, because if you want to talk about creating an environment that is, is, is free of bullying, where people can really flourish and do their best work and have peak engagement experiences, 
you have to begin early, especially if we're talking about people that are leading other human beings. And there's a psychological transition that accompanies the move into management. If you're insecure, that's going to show up and it's not going to show up in a good way. And we've got to help people with that psychological transition so that they get to the point where they move from direct to indirect contribution and they're able to rejoice in the success of their people. Yes. And actually that that rejoicing, that rewarding, that recognizing, it can be something so small and so simple, like thank you, great piece of work, or oh wow, we really all got through that together today. Mm-hmm. That makes the biggest difference. Small things. Yeah, yeah. It does. I think one of the things that people get hung up on is they think, well, they're going to have to do something really huge to make a difference. And actually what you need to do is a series of small things that you do consistently that keep you moving forward and keep you changing. So it's not a quick fix. You know, we're talking about continually developing people, organizations, adapting, changing, moving forward. It's not a a static Mm -hmm. process that we're talking about here at all. It's very dynamic. So Nikki, I wanted to ask you, what have you done in your professional life to continue to increase your self-awareness? Do you have a practice or a habit or something that you can share Yeah, so as a coach, I've got a a lot of friends and colleagues that are my go-to people. So if I feel myself getting stuck or um, anything like that, I'll go to them and just say, okay, I need you to (laughs) talk to me about this or I need to share something and talk it through. So that's, that's really important for me. I also, I'm very much of, I believe in the head, heart, gut really listening to our whole body and the intuition as well and a lot of that came from the fact that during my coaching training and part of my recovery I actually did some equine facilitated coaching and the horses are there as a coach and they're incredibly intuitive creatures and so through their body language their behaviors they bring you a huge amount of information in in quite a different way so that was always quite powerful for me. So do you learn to read their body language? You do, but you have another coach there. So you have a coach and you have a horse. And so during the coaching Uh session, um, the horse will react to what's going on internally for you because they, they know when you're, head is not matching with your heart for example so they can pick it up yeah yeah so they're that they're that sensitive they're they're absolutely incredible just a really quick example for you when I was being coached after I'd been bullied I kept talking about work as if you know work was the issue and the horse was spinning behind me and all of a sudden I just went it's not about work it's about health and as I did, the horse just came stopped and stood right next to me. Mm. Oh, you've got it at last. Stop going around in circles because now you're ne- now you're where you need to be. So, yeah, quite extraordinary experience. That's fantastic. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. Finally, what what advice would you give organizations 
and individuals that are really, they're exercising good faith. They're really trying to make progress in overcoming bullying in their in the workplace and in their cultures. What would you say to them? First of all, do not be afraid of the word bullying. Bullying behaviors, as we talked about earlier, there's a huge spectrum of behaviors. If you show a bullying behavior, it doesn't automatically make you a bully. It's, you know, we have to look at the bigger picture, what's going on around that. Is it out of the norm for them? But first of all, just talk about this, talk about the different behaviors, be really open about what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable in the organization and be prepared for people to speak up. And if you're a leader and be prepared for anybody to be able to come to you and say, you didn't behave in the right way there. You weren't living to your values. This is what I saw. And to take that on board. I think, you know, that's a lot easier said than done, but you have to find somebody that you will hear that message from. Mm -hmm. Who are you prepared to hear that message from? And we've all got people that we would (laughs) rather get the bad news from than others. So We need that though, don't we? Yeah, we do. We We absolutely need that. We need sources of unedited feedback. Yes, yeah. And I think finally, just for an individual, if you're feeling bullied, then please, please seek help. There is help out there. There is support. But most of all, just don't feel like it's the end of the world. You know, these things can be resolved. If they don't get resolved satisfactorily for you, then there is life afterwards. And there are still good employers out there. That's a hopeful message. Thank you for that. Nikki, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. What a rich and wonderful conversation. I'm just so appreciative that you would you would do this. It's been wonderful to be here. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com.